Good morning, family. <clears throat> thank you, thank you. If you got a copy of God's Word, uh, please turn to the Gospel According to Christ by Luke, and we'll be in chapter 19. The worship guide, if you want to use technology to find your sermon text, you can pull up on that guide. And if you got it, please say, I got it, Luke 19, verses 28 through 42. And in honor of God's word, will we stand as I read God's word? I know it's different, guys. It's okay. We're good. We can stand up. It's all right. Luke 19, verses 28 through 42. This is the word of the Lord. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, What are you tying? Or why are you untying? Say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading the clothes on the floor, on the road. Now he came near the path of the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that he has seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were kept silent, these stones would cry out. And as he approached, he saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plan deep in us. Shape us and fashion us in your likeness. That the light of Christ may be seen today in our acts of love and deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, as we hear your word and fill us with your glory. I ask all these things for the king's glory and the advance of the king's kingdom, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, my wife and I had the pleasure of watching a good friend of mine named Cody finally get married to his beautiful bride, Danielle. While sitting and waiting for the bride to proceed down the aisle, I thought about numerous conversations Cody and I had that led up to this moment. Conversations about him shooting his shot to Danielle, about long-distance relationship and dating, marriage and doing life. And I, it, he came to me like I was married for 20 years and had all this wisdom. And I was like, bro, I've only been married for three years, man. I'm like, I'm still in this honeymoon stage, as a lot of people tell me. But it made me think about... <laughs> it's okay, you can talk back. All right, it's God with the glory. But it made me think about my marriage to my beautiful bride. When I got to say, I do. But before this moment, I felt so unprepared on how to become a husband. And those who know me, I start reading books to try to understand what it looks like to be a husband. 
And I read a book by Paul Tripp called What Did You Expect? It helped me to level set my expectations for marriage and have a healthy perspective of the realities of marriage, which was later reinforced by premarital counseling by Pastor Russell and his beautiful bride, Toya, which I am eternally grateful. And as God's glory, I realized how much I needed to have the proper expectations so that I would not miss the beauty and the joy of this complicated thing called marriage. And I praise God for that moment. Today, in today's text, um, it's a moment in scripture in which the gospel writer Luke challenges the people of God in having the proper expectations of Christ. In particular, having the proper perspective of why he has come. As we look forward to celebrating Resurrection Sunday next week, I have the joy to unpack some groundwork that leads to the cross and the resurrection of Christ. As we dive into the season of Easter, I want to use today to think about that today's text on this Palm Sunday is not the beginning of the end of the life of Christ, rather it's the birth, the beginning of something new for God's people. And that's our main point. Christ's triumphal entry is not the beginning of the end of Jesus Christ's life, rather it's the beginning of something new for God's people. So let's dive into today's text, verses 28 through 31. When he, Jesus, said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And when I ask you, what are you untying? Say this, the Lord needs it. So today's text opens up with the words, when he said these things. Luke is reminding the readers about a parable Jesus just told about the kingdom of God to his disciples. The kingdom of God was not going to appear right away as most believed. Some of the followers had this expectation of Christ that he was about to usher in the kingdom of God. But Christ was saying it's not now, but it's going to be later. But Christ knew that the reason why he's about to ride on a colt into Jerusalem was to be the sacrifice that God's people needed to atone for sins once and for all. But more about that later. So he approaches Bethpage and Bethany and stopped. He does not proceed to move forward, but stop at this particular place in time. Now one of the values of Reconciliation Church is making disciples for the glory of God. And in order for us to make disciples for the glory of God, we need to teach people how to understand the word of God, meaning the Bible. We need to teach them that every word written in the Bible is not written by accident. Each word has a purpose. As we, the church, continue to make disciples for the glory of God, we need to teach the disciples to have a healthy hermeneutic, meaning having healthy art and science of studying God's word. Meaning when we study the Bible on our own or in community groups or in discipleship, we have a hermeneutic that is helping us to start asking better questions to help us unpack the meaning of the text. So asking, why does Jesus stop here, is a good hermeneutic. What's up with Bethpage and Bethany is a good hermeneutic. Why does Luke, out of all things he could include it, include this moment? Now the Bible tells us that Bethany is a leper colony. You can see on this map on the stage how close it is from the two cities into the main area of where 
the temple is. Bethany is a leper colony in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And being a leper colony, it is a place in which, he, which the rejects of the outcast of society were forced to live. In John 11, you had the story of Mary and Martha coming to Jesus about the death of Lazarus. And after four days, Jesus shows up and raises Lazarus from the dead. We know in Mark 14, in Bethany, Mary anointed Jesus' feet in the home of Simon the leper. Could this be the reason why Jesus stops at the city? To visit Simon the leper, Mary and Martha? To say hello to Lazarus one more time? Could this be the reason why Jesus stops and and as for a donkey of all things, I want to remind you that Christ came to fulfill the totality of the law. You see in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Jesus says, Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of letter, meaning the Hebrew original language, will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, the word law here in Greek, some theologians argue that Jesus is not only referencing the divine law of God, meaning the Torah, the Pentateuch, or the Old Testament for us, but also human law, which was made by people of God, which is not divine. Now, when I refer to human law, I'm referring to this book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a written collection of oral laws that were created after the destruction of the Second Temple. These laws were humanly created. I want to stress that they're not divine. And these laws were, again, not inspired by God, but created by the leaders of Israel. The Mishnah became very legalistic because these rules that were written down started to create barriers to people and how they can approach God. You had laws that told people how to pray, how to eat, how to get married. They had laws of what they could do and what they couldn't do on Sabbath. And even had laws for foreigners when they were traveling to Jerusalem of what they can do and how they can conduct themselves. Eventually, you'll see Pharisees throughout the scriptures challenge Jesus on text saying, don't you know, has it been written? And sometimes they're not referring to the Bible, but referring to a different book called the Mishnah, which was a community cultural thing that Jesus understood. Now, these leaders not only created the Mishnah, they also created symbolic markers throughout the region to help reinforce the laws. One of these markers was a pole that was placed out of the city that kind of looks and kind of declares a Welcome to Jerusalem to all people as we travel like when we're on the highway. Welcome to Raleigh. Welcome to North Carolina. These polls told everyone who was traveling into Jerusalem, you better abide by these rules we have for you. Can you guess where one of these polls is marked outside the city of Jerusalem? Bethany. So when Jesus shows up, he understands what this poll is representing. One of the rules for foreigners was that when they traveled into Jerusalem, was they, they had to get off whatever they were riding. And for political reasons, when they saw that pole, they did. They did not want to ruffle some feathers of the leaders of Israel, because riding to Jerusalem was only reserved 
but one person, the King of Israel. So in the time of Christ, funny to see that truly powerful and wealthy kings never rode on extravagant animals. Rather, they would ride on a donkey or a noble steed to kind of flex their wealth, saying, I don't need to ride this big boy. Donkey is sufficient. In today's culture, it's kind of flipped if you think about it. I don't know if you ever watched this. Uh, when I was a kid, I watched this show called on MTV by Super Sweet 16. And I remember watching these teenagers constantly watching and talking to their parents saying like, hey, what do you want to ride in when you come to your Super Sweet 16? They're like, I want a Lamborghini. And I'm like, you can't afford a Lamborghini. You don't even have a license. They're like, no, I want it now. I was like, you are brats trying to watch this million-dollar car that you don't have a license to drive 10 feet to impress your friends. But isn't that our culture today? Don't we think about we must have the baddest car, the Mercedes? I barely can fit in it. But people are like, you should drive it. I'm like, no, I'll drive a truck because I fit that better. Or think about the movie Aladdin. Yes, Disney references. Congratulations. Think about Aladdin. When Aladdin wants to impress Jasmine, he wishes a, uh, makes a wish to Genie, and Genie creates this, this whole parade, this caravan of people to walk with him. He rides this massive elephant called Abu. He has slaves and servants to carry all this jewelry, all this fortune, all these animals to impress Jasmine. Jasmine's like, I don't want any of it. But that's our culture. That's our mindset. That we need to flaunt and show off our fortune and fame. But Jesus, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has all wealth. He says, no, I won't. I will come. Call for a young colt or a young donkey to ride on. Because he is declaring that he is long awaited Messiah Christ for Israel and for the world. He makes sure that no one questions it. He continues to obey this human law while fulfilling the divine law. The divine law is Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament. Jesus knew all the prophecies that were written about him that were, he was required to fulfill. Jesus knew about the prophecy that described the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. In Zechariah 9.9, we read, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous. He is victorious, humbled and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foiled donkey. So think about it. 500 years before the donkey takes his first steps with Jesus on his back, the prophets predicted that our Messiah was coming as a king on a donkey. That's the beauty of Scripture. You study it, we get to know it. We have a healthy hermeneutic. You get to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament are not rejecting each other, but they're going hand in hand. And there's so much depth and wealth. So Jesus stops at this particular place called Bethany to fulfill both the human and divine law. But he also stops at a particular time. For those who do not know, Jesus arrives four days before the Passover. The Passover was a Jewish festival of remembrance, which the people of God are remembering and celebrating the acts of God in the, ex in the exodus from Egypt. So once a year, all the people will come from that lands and would gather to Jerusalem to worship God and provide sacrifices for their sins. 
So when Jesus shows up, it's actually lamb selection day. A day in which those who traveled far, who could not afford or bring an animal to be sacrificed, could come and select an animal to be sacrificed on the behalf of their family. So Luke is telling us in a, in a very Jewish way that Jesus is screaming, pick me, I am the lamb. I am the one that John said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world from John 1.29. Out of all the days that he could have chosen, Jesus picks this day at Bethany to announce that he is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Christ that everybody's been longing for. Jesus says, I have come to Bethany, to the place of rejects, to declare that all are welcome to my kingdom. Not only am I the Lamb of God for your sacrifices, but I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am what have you been longing for. I have fulfilled all these things. I have been divinely ordained by God. No rules of man, no human laws can prevent me to do my Father's work. Before I keep going, I want to ask this question to us. I've been wrestling a lot with this this week. When we think about the Mishnah, and how sometimes the Mishnah was created by man to prevent or give rules or barriers for people to approach God, what human laws or Mishnahs or legalistic rules have we put in place to prevent people from coming to know Jesus? Are we telling people that you have to get yourself clean, do this, get rid of what you've been doing, present yourself in this matter before you can come to God, and then God will love you? Are we telling people that as a church? Oh, let me flip the script. What human laws or Mishnahs or rules have we put in place to prevent us from going to tell people about Jesus? Some of us have wrestled, man, I, I just don't know what to say. I don't know the full gospel. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't. And you're putting up walls and barriers and comfort zones, really, if we're honest with ourselves, that prevents us from going to talk to people about Jesus. We're called to go share our faith to our lost neighbors, our broken friends, our troubled family. What is preventing us from going? What rules have we put in place? Last, I want to challenge those who are wrestling about church. What's preventing you from belonging? We as Reconciliation Church are a people transformed by the gospel, making disciples for the glory of God. What are you having against the church to make sure they fill all this checklist of things before you can even commit? What's preventing you from going? What's preventing you allowing people to come? What's preventing you from belonging, family? Christ, who's riding on a colt, is going to a cross for your sake so you can belong, so you can be welcome, so you can go and tell about his glorious grace. Verse 32 through 38. So those who were sent left and found it as just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading the clothes on the road, for he had come near the path down. So he had come near the path 
down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who has come in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to Christ for God in the highest. So Jesus told them to bring this cult to him, and they did. And because they, because these people knew the prophecies of the coming Messiah, they saw all the miracles that Jesus did. And when they saw him request for the disciples to bring him a colt to ride on, they broke out in worship. They began to throw their colt clothes on the colt. They began to spread their clothes on the road. In John 12, we see that they also took palm branches and began to wave and shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. What we are witnessing here is an expression of submission and worship to Jesus as their liberating king. Symbolically, they are bringing all of those, are bringing all of who they were, all that they identified with, all that they had, and laid it before Jesus and began to worship. The people were praising, laying down all they had before Jesus. But sadly, family, some of them had the wrong expectations of who Jesus was and what he came to do. How can we tell this? Think about what was said in the Gospel of John about this occasion. They brought branches and waved them before Jesus and said, Blessed is the King of Israel. Palm branches in the time of Jesus were used in two manners. One, it was a symbolic or symbol of political revolution. And two, is a symbol of victory. In 1 Maccabees, which is a book written in the intertestamental period, with the blank pages between the Old Testament and the New, that after a victory in war, the people of God would, would cut down palm branches and wave them in celebration as they cheered in victory over the defeated foes. So when Jesus shows up, they're waving these branches, anticipating of this political victory that Jesus is going to do to usher in against a specific world power, the Romans. Remember, during the life of Christ, Israel was enduring a Roman occupation. These oppressed people were longing for the long-awaited king to liberate the people of God. So they rushed out a chance to praise God, laying down their clothes and wave palm branches, believing Jesus has come to bring them salvation from the Romans. They've been pleading to God to bring victory against the Romans, to restore Israel and usher in the kingdom of God. But they missed what he was there for. The crowd was not pleading for salvation from sin, but pleading for salvation from oppression of Rome. They came with palm branches, with the wrong expectations of Christ. The Septuagint and other Jewish teachings taught that the Messiah was to come to the city of Jerusalem. You see this in Zechariah 14. And he is supposed to come on the Passover, Jeremiah 31. But some traditions stated that the Messiah would come as Moses did in the book of Exodus, where he appeared before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And as Moses did, their expectations of the Messiah would come once again and say, let my people go to the Roman Empire. 
And some of the Jewish leaders predicted that when the Messiah was to come, based on the prophecies and interpretations, and for the people from the past couple of Passovers, the Jewish people are anticipating the coming of Christ. And year after year, they bought palm trees to the Passover, just in case the Messiah would show up. Now, palm trees were not native to Jerusalem, to the city. So year after year, the people would cut down branches, drag them to Jerusalem, and wait and hope that this is going to be the year that the Messiah will show up. And sadly, historically, when we found out that Jesus didn't show up, they were hurt. Their anticipations, their excitement started to dwindle. Will he ever show up? And when Jesus did show up and did not live up to their expectations, they were disappointed. Some even rejected God altogether. What they wanted was this conquering king, which they'll see one day in Revelation 19, where Jesus will show up once again on a horse, tattoo on his thigh, scepter in one hand, sword in the other, to conquer. But what they needed, they did not see that when Jesus was coming, he was coming as a suffering servant, described in Isaiah 53. So when they did not get what they expected, less than a day or two after Lamb Selection Day, they would turn on Christ, cry out for his crucifixion, and celebrate his death. All because they brought the wrong expectations about Jesus. And they waved it around. Family, what branches or expectations did you bring to Christ that were not placed or were for him? Did you come to Christ asking him to make all things better for you? Did you go to him with wishes like he's the genie from Aladdin asking him to do things for you to make life easier for you, to have your best life now? And when he doesn't, your heart hardens and you push them away. I'm learning daily that when I feel that God is far off, it is not because of him, it's because of me. What branches did you bring? What expectations did you bring to God? He doesn't fulfill and you get angry with him. What branches are you still holding on to? That Jesus advised you to let go, taste and see, good I am, what I'm really about, what scripture really says about me, that I'm kind, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm all that you need. Let's keep going, verse 39 through 40. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones will cry out. Now, if you, if you read scripture, you will find out very quickly, not everyone's a fan of Jesus. Now, everyone was filled with joy and excited that Jesus was coming. The Pharisees knew that they could not do anything to stop this worship, stop this movement, stop this moment. So they appealed to Jesus Christ to silence his followers. But Jesus, rather than grant their wishes, he says, I tell you, 
if they were to keep silent, the stones cry out. But Jesus knows, as Romans 9 mentions, like all the creation is groaning for the revelation of God's Son. It's interesting that Jesus' response to the Pharisees that the stones will cry out was also a rebuke to the leaders of Israel. Because Jesus is saying that these inanimate objects, these stones of creation, would know more about who Jesus is and his purposes than the religious leaders of Israel. And they will cry out. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew why he was there. Jesus has been orchestrating these first sequences of events to lead to the birth of something new for the people of God. This was the Father's plan all along. Jesus knew exactly what he was writing into. And that's why he can boldly say in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me. It be my life. But I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. And I have received this commandment from my Father. So, verses 41. He approached and saw the city and wept for it. And if you saying, if you knew this day, what would it bring? Peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus saw Jerusalem, which means the foundation of peace. It's interesting, the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, is about to lay his life down once and for all for the atonement that would reconcile God and man. He approaches the city and weeps. The Greek word here for weep is not describing someone who just has one simple tear, but describes someone who cries profusely from sadness, meaning Jesus having an ugly cry, uncontrollable, waterfall, snot-dripping type of tears. Not the single tear from Denzel Washington glory, just an overwhelming tears. But why would he cry? You ever ask that question? Why does he approach Jerusalem and cry? After all the worship he just received, people laying down his life, laying down their clothes and saying, I will submit to you as king. Why does Jesus weep? It's because they missed it. They're missing the reason why he is here. Jesus says, if you knew this day, what would bring peace, but now is hidden from your eyes? I can, I can picture Jesus saying, if you knew and understand what was really going on, what I'm about to usher in, if my people ha had the right expectations of me, and see why I'm riding on this donkey on this day into this city, they would know I'm about to suffer for them, for the world, for reconciliation between God and man. And their praises will be different. It will not be the praise about the liberation from Rome, but about the salvation in Christ and Christ alone. His tears were for those who did not understand why he has come. His tears were for those who still were lost. 
Benny, I want to ask in closing, what tears would Jesus cry for you? When Jesus thinks about your name, is he crying tears saying, daughter, you just don't get it. I love you. I want you. I want to be in a relationship with you. Stop pushing me away. What is a son? I know the mistakes you made. I'm not here to make everything the most joyful thing. I'm here to be your father. I'm here for a relationship with you. The thing I ask you is, when he thinks of you, does he cry tears? Because you really do not know who he truly is. Or does he cry tears because you're really missing the point? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have come to die. And after you died, you came back three days later to prove the death on the cross, the atonement of sins, was paid for by his blood. And as you are alive today, reigning in heaven, preparing for us, advocating for us daily, I pray, Lord, that we understand that you still shed tears. And I pray for those in here who are coming today, missing the mark of why you've come. I ask you in your kindness, Lord, would you reveal to them what you're truly about. And I pray for those who do not know you, that would taste and see that the Lord is good. I ask all these things for the King's glory and the advancement of King's kingdom, I pray. Amen. Family, we're going to do something a little bit different than we normally do on Sundays. As you came in today, you would notice that there were some note cards or pens on your chair. As Russell mentioned earlier in our announcements, the one thing we want to be is about a church that prays. And what I want to challenge us today is to do one thing. Take the card, both of them, write your name on them. I want you to think about three people who's missing what Jesus is about. Three people who are still lost. Three people who needs Jesus. Write down their names and how you know them, friend, family, coworker, fill the blank. Because we, as leaders of this church, want to be about praying for lost souls. Praying for those who Jesus is crying tears about that they missed the mark. So write them both on both note cards. And when we take our offering today, put one of the note cards in the basket and take the second one home for you. So as we commit to pray for these lost souls, you are also committing to pray for them too. So take a couple moments. Write the name, your name on top of the card. On both, write three names that we could be praying for. So Lord willing, next Palm Sunday, we can scratch those names off because they have come and tasted and seen that the Lord is good.